Gospel of Mark this morning in chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, if you'll find your way there. I'll be preaching from the CSB, which is the same translation as our pew Bibles here this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. That we might honor the word of the Lord, would you please stand as we read from it together, as it is read for us. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water or to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and stood him up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive him out, drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So I hope you are enjoying this Christmas season. The music is beautiful. Again, thank you, Ginger, for presenting that song for us this morning. Uh, So much that we get to enjoy, reconnections. With family, I want to add my testimony to Brother Alex. Uh, uh, Friday, I left as well, wondering what would happen now that we had heard about the global supply chain. And, and I, too, uh, came home, checked the mail, and received a package all the way from Hong Kong that I had ordered just a few weeks before. I didn't know that, wasn't sure that it would arrive. So it's just, it's just amazing. And, and, and I hate to disappoint you, Alex. I know you have big plans for next Christmas Eve, but... I think the schedule is I'll be preaching that service, so uh, I don't know that... Uh, the... No pressure at <laughs> Yeah, no pressure at all, absolutely. It's a wonderful time to reconnect with friends and family, whether they're able to be present with you or not. Uh, uh, I'll drop one name here. Some of you recognize uh, Wayne Huggins, uh, was with us for several years as a youth leader, and uh, he ha- and his family are down in South Carolina, I'm pretty sure it is, and uh, they just... Uh, 
it's just been a, a, a wonderful time to reconnect with different folks as they've moved on to other places in their lives and see how their families are growing and how they're doing, how they are continuing to serve the Lord where the Lord has placed them. But parents, let's, let's talk about a real situation here for a moment. Have you ever left peaceful and content children in a scene of tranquility? only to come back moments later because you've heard some crash, some bang, some boom, some scream, and what was once a scene of complete calm and and joy and peace has now become chaos and mayhem. Has that anybody happened to anybody before? Absolutely. And and maybe it's not children. Maybe it's pets, right? You know, one minute they're just kind of curled up on, on the blanket or the pillow or their bed, and then the next minute, wow, what did, what did they just bring down to the ground? Well, that's somewhat, I think, the kind of feeling that Jesus was having as he encountered the scene described for us in Mark chapter 9 and 14 and following. You could say he came, went from the transfiguration to the conflagration. I knew I wasn't going to pronounce that right. Conflagration. Uh, I was just impressed that I worked that word into a sermon outline. I was just like bonus points scrabble or something, you know, for me. Uh, but Jesus was transitioning, of course, the last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Pastor Jason was telling us about the transfiguration, that wonderful moment of glory uh, and light uh, where the, the glory of Christ was revealed for uh, Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with Jesus. But now they were coming down off the mountain. They were re-entering uh, the valley, and as they did so, it's, a, it's important, I think, to reflect upon spiritual mountaintop experiences. They're amazing and they're exciting. They can be so full of hope and joy, and sometimes they even include mountains. It's, a, it's, it's it certainly was my experience growing up. Uh, went many summers to a youth camp on a mountain, and those were literally and spiritually mountaintop experiences, drawing closer to the Lord at those times. Now, it's also true that the days and weeks after that can be very difficult, whether that's because of spiritual warfare, which is very real, as we're about to see, uh, or simply because of our own sin and having to overcome it over time. But Peter, as we learned in the last message in Mark, uh, Peter wanted to stay on that mountaintop. He wanted the experience to continue. He, He proposed building shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, but Jesus as Brother Alex was just reminding us, was determined to go to the cross. He, couldn't, he wasn't going to just stay up on the mountain and let everybody come to him. He was here for us. I like how Dr. Aiken, Dr. Danny Aiken, uh, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, puts it in his commentary on Mark. He says, mountaintop experiences are wonderful, and we need them from time to time for spiritual nourishment and the recharging of our spiritual batteries. However, God never intended us to stay there. He wants us down here, preaching the gospel to and ministering among the hurting and suffering. He wants us living with and serving real people devastated by the ravages of the fall and sin. As his agents of redemptive love, we go in his name and with the promise of his presence, whether that is Town Creek or Bosnia or any other place around our nation and world. And the church 
around the world and certainly Leonardtown Baptist Church family, we would do well to remember this. To illustrate the truth that the people of God should be about the mission of God, Jesus leaves the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John and returns to his mission to seek and save the lost. And after surveying the situation, Jesus asks the scribes, what are you arguing with them about? Now, it's not apparent in English, but the textual clues indicate that Jesus is addressing the scribes, asking them, what are you arguing with them about? While that may be the case, Jesus' question confronts two failures of faith, that of the scribes and that of his own followers. Verses 14 through 19, these failures of faith uh, come to the surface. First, let's look at the scribes. The scribes were certainly, in their culture, in their time and day, uh, those who knew God's word best, but they knew the word of God made flesh the least. They knew God so well that they just knew everything, or they thought they knew, everything that God could or wouldn't do, including becoming a human being. There was certainly a pervasive perspective among Greeks, Jews. We see it today among Muslims, for example. Uh, This perception that, well, because God is so holy, so pure, so righteous, he's distanced and separated from us so much that he would never sully himself, dirty himself to have contact with human flesh. And yet, that's exactly and precisely what Jesus did. So they had poured their energy into preserving their place rather than serving others. May that never be said of us. Faith in God and relying on him had become an afterthought for these men. But they weren't alone. There were the remaining disciples of Christ that had not gone up with Peter, James, and John. They, along with Peter, James, and John, had been given the authority to drive out demons as part of their commissioning as leading disciples in Mark chapter 3, verse 15. And they had been successful in exercising demons before. They, they, they did this after being sent out again in Mark chapter 6, in verse 13, where it says, they drove out many demons, anointing many sick people with oil, and healed them. But they couldn't do it this time, could they? What was the difference? Well, it wasn't the difference of Jesus' physical presence or or his absence, uh, but they did take their eyes, their focus, off of him. Peter had learned about this the hard way, as we read in Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 through 31. After seeing Jesus off in the distance and wondering whether it was really him or a ghost or what was going on, he confirmed that it was him, and Peter uh, asked to join him. And so we see in verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. And he, that is Jesus, said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? But Peter wasn't among the group that failed this time. Have you ever noticed that when, you, when they were removed from Jesus' presence, 
The disciples always seem to find themselves in some kind of crisis, some kind of trouble. I don't think that's a coincidence. Just as it wasn't a coincidence that as Peter took his gaze off of Christ and onto the strength of the storm, he began to sink. Both groups, the scribes and the disciples, experienced failures of faith. Again, I find Dr. Aiken uh, helpful uh, as we consider our own propensity for failure. He says, failure can make us bitter or it may make us better. We can take it as instructive, corrective, and learn from it. Failure may show us where we need to give additional effort or it may show us that we need help that we need the strength of someone else besides our own, above our own, beyond our own. Before we move on, I want to point out Jesus' response to his followers' failure of faith. First of all, he responds with transparency. He's completely open and honest about how he's feeling in the moment, isn't he? He, he says right there in front of them, how long am I going to put up with this? this unbelieving generation. And he includes the disciples at that moment in that, in that description. He tells them exactly how he's feeling. So he's transparent with them. He's honest with them. But also, notice that he does not attack them. He doesn't reject them. He loves them. He saves them. And he gives them one more reason to believe in him. He is faithful, despite their lack of faith. That brings us to verse 20 and the power of faith, verses 20 through 27. Here, the events enter a, a new phase. It begins with the demon's reaction to Jesus. He, he really throws the boy into a kind of temper tantrum, just a true fit of rage as he realizes or begins to realize just what's about to happen. This encounter with the demon possessing the boy reminds us a few things about demons. One, they are real. There is no question about that. They want to inflict pain and suffering on us, and they are capable of doing so. Spiritual, physical, and mental pain. And on our own, let's be honest, we're powerless against them. So Jesus asked the father a question. How long has this been happening to him? Now, as with any time God asks a question, it wasn't, just, it wasn't because Jesus lacked information. The purpose of this question had to do with the Father. It had the effect of revealing the Father's struggle with his faith in Jesus. And so we see in verse 21, the Father's response. He says, from childhood. And in verse 22, he says, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now that father had probably begun this journey to find Jesus with great faith, with perhaps great zeal. Likely it was his encounter with Jesus' own disciples, in addition to the skepticism of the scribes, that had wore down his own faith. Consider that possibility for a moment. His encounter with Christ's followers was playing a part in discouraging his faith in Jesus. At some point, he had believed that Jesus could uh, deliver his son, even through the disciples, but now he wasn't as certain. 
There's a lot to unpack in Jesus' answer, in Jesus' response to the Father. If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. So let's break down that answer. First of all, Jesus says, if you can. You see, for Jesus, this wasn't even up for debate or speculation. Jesus was very confident and self-assured of his power and abilities as God incarnate. So that wasn't even on the table. But then his answer begins with the word everything. He says everything is possible. That means, of course, that the reverse is true, that nothing is impossible with God. What had the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he told her about the news that she was going to bear the Son of God? He told her nothing is impossible with God. Now let's understand that when God puts things into words, when he reveals himself to us through his word, through these kinds of encounters, he means what he says. So when Jesus says everything is possible, he is saying everything. Lost family members who have hardened their hearts against the gospel, not only over years, but decades. Nothing is impossible with God. Struggles in our marriages, things that just seem to persist, and they're just always going to be there, and we just have to accept the failure. No, nothing is impossible with God. Loved ones addicted to various different things, loved ones in need of healing, nothing is impossible with God. Everything is possible, Jesus says. And by the way, when he says possible, he's not saying that it will happen, that it's guaranteed. He's not necessarily saying that the things we may seek of God are are good or right. But if the question is, can God or can't God, then the answer is always yes. God can. The question, if there is a question at all, is will God? And that is often less certain. We have echoes here of Mark chapter 1. Uh, verses 40 through 42. Jesus has another encounter with someone seeking healing from him. And there we read, then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Will he or won't he? That is subject to God's plan, to his plan, not only for us personally, but collectively. And it calls for trust. It calls for complete faith in him. That's why Jesus ends this statement. Everything is possible for who? For the one who believes. And when the Bible uses the word belief, when the Bible uses those those kinds of words, it's talking about something more than mere hopeful or wishful thinking. In the Bible, when we're called to belief or faith, we're called to trust, total and complete confidence that God can and will do the right thing, the best thing in every and all situations. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Listen, this is because of the one in whom they believe. It's not a statement about the one who does the believing and the strength or the size of their faith. The focus is never on the believer, but on the believed. God is the focus. He is the one that matters most. 
And then we have the father's reply. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I don't know about you, but I can really relate to this father. I can relate to that tension, that struggle between doubt and faith. That second cry, though, is a clue that all is not lost. Because by calling on God for greater faith, we see the essence of true faith. We don't need to be ashamed or feel inferior when we find ourselves crying out for more faith. God wants his children to call out to him, to cry out to him. Now, there may be some who possess pure, unwavering faith in God 24-7, but the vast majority of us, if we're honest, would acknowledge a similar struggle. We do believe we need God to help the shortcomings of our faith. Human beings have such limited capacity and perspective. We don't see things as God sees them. We don't know what he knows. We can't look around the corner, let alone around the turn of the calendar. 2022, what does it have in store? We will find out. But it will be no surprise to God. God knows this. He understands this well about his children, that we don't have his perspective. And as Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1, reminds us, faith is the reality of what's hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. We talked about this over the last few weeks of Advent during our candle lighting slash children's messages as we talked about how hope and joy and peace and love, all of those components of, of Advent were strengthened and, and made whole by faith. This is the power of faith. That either way, either outcome, whatever we bring to God, we trust him. No matter how it may turn out, timing, whether the answer is yes or no or wait, or just comes from a completely different way than we never would have imagined or anticipated, whatever we bring to him, we trust God, we obey God, and he remains our God throughout, no matter what the outcome is. We trust it to him to always do the right thing, to always love us better than we could possibly imagine for ourselves. Jesus didn't have to deliver the man's son in order to be God or to prove anything to anybody. God owes us no such demonstration, and he needs not present any such credential. But this is the greatest test of faith, to trust God and his plan for our own lives, for the lives of those we love, for all of humanity. In this case, the father's mustard seed of faith was enough. And the Son of God once again displayed his power over all things. Though the demon shrieked and convulsed the boy's body, so much so that the crowd believed the boy to be dead, Jesus raised him to his feet and restored him to his father with the added assurance that no demon would ever enter the boy again by virtue of Jesus' command that it be so. And if that, if that sounds familiar, it may be because we saw a similar scene Back in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verses 21, when in another exclusive opportunity for Peter, James, and John to witness the spectacular display of Jesus' power and glory, they were invited with Jesus to see him raised from the dead, the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue leader. The boy in our story 
did not die. But Mark continues to point us towards the cross, towards that cross and the resurrection that would follow. Finally, we see in this passage this morning the nature and the purpose of prayer. In verses 28 and 29, we see that as often happens, Jesus pulled aside his disciples for a little after-action report. Naturally, the disciples wanted to know why they couldn't drive the demon out of the boy. Now, this is a case where the question bears the answer. Listen, why couldn't we drive it out? Do you hear it? It appears as though the disciples had made the all-too-common, all-too-familiar error of believing more in themselves than in their Lord. After a few successful exorcisms, they had begun to forget that they had no power of their own with which to expel demons. Jesus would teach his disciples this truth later, but you and I have the advantage of benefiting from his teaching while our attention is held by the events described here in Mark, Mark's gospel. Here's that teaching. In John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, he reminds all of us, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. We can do nothing without Christ. If you're facing situations like that, that for whatever reason appear hopeless, part of what needs to happen is you need to reconnect with your Lord. Seek him out. He is the one with, with the power. It appears as though the disciples have set aside humility and reliance on Jesus and replaced them with pride by taking the battle into their own hands. If you look at uh, stories like in the Old Testament, like the biblical account of the battle of David and Goliath, the only reason David is victorious was because he openly proclaimed that the battle was the Lord's, not his. He only defeated Goliath because he placed his faith in God's power to win instead of his own strength. The power the disciples had previously exercised in their other encounters with demons was always a mediated authority. They were tools, vessels for God's power to achieve the victory. And in spite of the disciples' flawed question, Jesus answers it. He tells them, this kind, can come, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Now, don't miss the forest for the trees. In other words, don't get caught up at this moment speculating about demons. I know that's tempting. But Jesus' teaching to those present and to us was about the nature and power of prayer. First, the nature of prayer. Remember when Jesus asked the father how long his son had been suffering and how that question led the man to open up about his struggle to have faith in Jesus? The nature of prayer is that it is an exercise for us through which we develop our reliance on our heavenly Father. You don't ask for something unless you understand that you don't have it and that you can't get it for yourself. 
And you don't ask someone for something unless you believe they have the ability to deliver and they actually care about you and your need. God doesn't need our prayer to know what our needs are. We need to go to the Lord in prayer so that we know that he is God and we are not. Prayer teaches us to depend upon the only one who is forever faithful and true. God loves us so much more than we love ourselves. Like a child going to their mother or father, we go to our heavenly father and we ask him for what we need, more faith, healing, reconciliation, victory over one challenge or obstacle or another. We do this because we need him to act, to provide, to love us. That's the nature of prayer. The power of prayer is in verse 29 when Jesus answered the disciples' question by telling them that prayer has great power. James, the half-brother of Christ, testifies to this in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 of his letter. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Whether you are facing demons or giants or diseases or broken relationships, whatever it may be, the prayer of faith is what will overcome any power, any obstacle, because the prayer places its faith in God alone. The disciples had failed to drive out the demon from the boy because they were not placing their faith in Christ, but in their own power, their own strength. They had forgotten to rely on Jesus, and because they lacked faith, they failed. So by way of application, there are three perils of unbelief that I want to call your attention to in reflection upon what we've seen here in Mark chapter 9. The first of those is that unbelief leads us into sin. Unbelief leads us into sin. Now, how does it do that? Well, it leads us into sin by disregarding the certain judgment that awaits And judgment awaits both unbeliever and believer. Now, it's two different judgments, but judgment does await. And this is because of Jesus, his death and resurrection that qualifies him and places him by God the Father to be the judge over both unbelievers and believers. One way or another, we are going to face our creator and we are going to give an account to him. But when we fail to believe that, when we dismiss that, when we push it back to the far recesses of our minds and we think, no, no, I can live however I want to live. I can make whatever choices. Jesus is, has gotten my fire insurance altogether. And we, we dismiss that in our unbelief. We do that to our own peril. Unbelief can lead us into sin by leading us to dismiss the seriousness of sin. We've just spent a year reading through God's word and, and just recently, again, Second Chronicles, we were reading about 
all the sacrifices necessary to consecrate the temple once again, to make it a proper place of worship where the name of the Lord would be able to dwell. Countless animals being sacrificed, nations being wiped out, the exile of God's own people, and certainly, most significantly, the brutal torture and crucifixion of Christ himself. Why? Because sin is not a joke. Because sin kills and sin destroys. And only by our unbelief do we just set that aside and, and, and entertain it and indulge in it. The second peril of unbelief is that it robs us of our joy. How does it do that? It robs us of our joy by leading us to forget just how awesome our God is, just how rich our blessings are in Christ. You see, when we fail to believe in that, when we put aside our faith and trust in the amazing God we serve, then we begin to see our anxiety, our worries to creep in. The stress begins to easily overwhelm us. And we find ourselves robbed of our joy. Unbelief robs us of our joy by allowing us to focus on the distractions and the concerns of this world, which leads us to turn away from the Lord. We have to recognize that the world offers us nothing but emptiness. All the things that we want to pursue, all the things that we think are going to fill that, that hole, fill that need, make us happy finally. We chase after these things. We can, we we allow ourselves to be consumed by these things and that robs us of our joy because we think, well, we'll never be really happy. Another last way for how unbelief robs us of our joy is that by believing our, uh, our enemy's wicked lies and instead of our Lord's pure truth. When we believe the lies that we hear around us from the culture in which we live, maybe you've been telling yourself or been hearing and listening to voices that tell you you can't be forgiven, that it's this hopeless, that things have gone too far, that you're some, somehow you have sinned beyond the reach of God's grace. Let me assure you that is not possible. It is not possible. I had someone in my office just a few weeks ago sitting down with me and he was sharing with me what he was going through and he told me I, I, all this time, I was believing that if I sat down here with you, that I would get nothing but condemnation, I would, I would be rejected. And what he found instead was God's grace, his forgiveness. The last way that unbelief presents peril to us is that it undermines our witness. Do you remember the crowd? The crowd was watching, weren't they? They had witnessed the debate, the argument between the scribes and the, and the disciples. They were watching and waiting for what all of this was going to be about. And the crowd watches us. The world around us, the unbelieving world around us watches us. And it is to our peril that we allow unbelief uh, to have the upper hand. Because it undermines our witness by doubting and or denying the reality and torment of hell. Doubt, unbelief kills our concern and our urgency to see others saved. When we don't believe God and Jesus at his word, 
that hell is a place of eternal darkness and torment, that it will be a place that God glorifies himself because of the justice of his wrath against those who are there, that that is a place that we don't want anyone we casually know, let alone someone we love to go there, and yet so easily we kind of set that aside, we dismiss it, and that is to our peril. And the last way it undermines our witness is by silencing our voice either with fear or discrediting our voice with anger. In our unbelief, we may begin to fear men more than we fear God. Or we may find ourselves lashing out against our perceived enemies. And in either case, we find Christians, those calling themselves by the name of Christ, out and about in our culture, living certainly not as those who have the most high God behind them. So much fear, so much anger coming from the people of God who are called to be agents of peace and reconciliation with the Lord. Unbelief. We struggle with it much like this father did in Mark chapter 9. We have our faith, we have unbelief, and we need God to help us in our unbelief. So this morning, before the praise team comes up, I'd like to lead us in prayer, a time of prayer. And the object of that prayer, the focus of that time of prayer, will be to call upon the Lord just as this father did. As people of faith, we will call upon the Lord to help our unbelief. Would you join me in that time of prayer? And then, then we will call the priest team up. Heavenly Father, much like the Father in our passage this morning, most of us would cry that we believe. We have repented of our sins. We have put our faith and trust in Christ. We believe him to be the Son of God who was born of a virgin, was, lived a complete life without sin. We believe that his sacrifice on the cross was to take the punishment for our sins. Your wrath against our sin is righteous and it is perfect it is holy and we believe that jesus satisfied that wrath with the sacrifice of his own life on that cross and lord we believe that he did not stay dead but that he rose from the grave confirming once and for all that his sacrifice had been accepted and that faith in him was the only way to have peace with God, the only way to be reconciled with him, the only way to have true peace and satisfaction in this life and in eternity. But Lord, we join the father of that boy, crying that you would help our unbelief as it leads us into sin. Lord, we pray that you would convict me, convict us, give us holy fear of you, God. We pray that you would help us, help me to understand how terrible an offense any sin is against you and you alone. Help us not to take the cross and the suffering of Christ lightly. Lord, we cry, help our unbelief as it robs us of our joy. Daily remind us, remind me of yourself, our awesome God. Lead me, lead us to ongoing gratitude as we recount all the blessings we have in Christ. May that 
fuel our joy. Lord, in our unbelief, we cry, help us to keep our eyes focused on you so that we may know the joy of our salvation and of your presence. May the things of earth fade away and grow strangely dim compared to the light of your face. Lord, we pray that you would tune our ears, our hearts, our minds to your voice and your truth. Remind Renew our minds with the mind of Christ. And may your truth grow sweeter on our tongues every day as we read your word, meditate on its truth, and seek your power to apply it in our own lives. Because, Lord, as we've been reminded today, we do not possess that strength within ourselves. Lord, we can absolutely find it in you. Lord, we cry, help our unbelief as it undermines our witness. Convince us, convince me even further of the reality and torment of hell that awaits all who do not repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ alone. Give me, give us a passion for the lost, lost, an urgency that prioritizes the use of my time, our time, our treasure, our talents to sharing the gospel here in St. Mary's County our nation, in Bosnia, and all the nations of the world. Lord, all those people groups, all those unreached people groups who have never heard your name. Three billion people, 40% of the world, who can't even hear about you yet. Lord, may that rob us of a little bit of sleep tonight. Lord, as as our unbelief undermines our witness, we pray that you would open our mouths to share the hope we have in Christ and to help us to live our faith out with integrity that lends credibility to what we claim, claim to believe. May our walk match our talk. May we care too much about others to stay silent. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.